this morning from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. And we're going to do something a little different this morning. We're going to read it out loud together. So please join me. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how deep and how rich is your wisdom. Give us a spirit of humility as we seek to understand the vastness and mysteries of your grace. And be with Pastor Jeff as he illuminates these mysteries from your word. May our lives reflect the truth that you, Lord, are the author and perfecter of all things, and that you alone deserve our worship. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Michelle. Well, each week we're going to start with that ode to God's Knowledge and wisdom, we're going to start with that. I want to encourage you to memorize it. We are trying to do it in the CSB version here. You can find that at BibleGateway.com if you need that version, or just pick one up. Uh, you can buy those off of, I don't know where you can buy them, but just go find one. And uh, today we'll be in Romans chapter 9 again. We'll be looking at some of the objections uh, to Paul's theology on God's sovereign election that Paul raises. We're going to look at two. And we're also going to look at some of the questions that naturally come out of that chapter that that we would bring to it. Paul doesn't necessarily anticipate our questions, but there are questions that we bring to it. We're going to be looking at that as well. So Romans chapter 9. And so let me ask you a question. If you had to give your life for someone today, your life in place of theirs, who would it be? Unflinchingly. Soldiers may give their lives to save their fellow warriors. Any parent, I would imagine, would give their lives to save their children. And occasionally we hear of stories, selfless acts of sacrificial love, as teachers shield their students from a hail of bullets in school. That is really horrible, but also a picture of heroism. Well, Paul's answer to this very question in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is his own kinsman, according to the flesh, Jews. Paul says, I would, I would give my life in place of theirs if I could. And last week, we, uh, last week, we discovered that just because Paul's kinsmen find themselves cut off from salvation, the salvation that is in Christ, according to verse 2, heaping upon themselves the curses that Moses warned them about in Deuteronomy 28, doesn't mean that God's ethnic plan for Israel is over. God has not cast them aside. He hasn't thrown them away. And it also doesn't mean, according to verse 6, he says it hasn't failed. His plan with the ethnic Jews didn't fail because God did exactly what he wanted to do. He brought the whole world, the Messiah, salvation that is in Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, he brought that salvation to the whole world. We surveyed five examples of Five examples of God's sovereign choice. God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau and Moses over Pharaoh. And then there was the potter who reserves the right over his clay, the creator over creation. 
And then the remnant, us, even us, he says, from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles, the remnant of his called, his chosen. And so today we're going to be looking at some objections Paul anticipates. There are two of them. One is in verse 14. The one in verse 14 basically is, is God a sinner? Is God unrighteous to choose one over the other? And the second objection is in verse 19. Or he says, how can God then hold us responsible for our sins if we're just acting according to his will? Now, if we find ourselves repeating these same objections to Paul, then that means we are not arguing with Paul. We are on the other side of his theology. And so we're going to look at those today. So the first question that arises, let's deal with the one that comes from our hearts, the ones that we bring to the text that Paul doesn't necessarily answer, but I think the answer is in here. Number one, are we God's elect because we have faith, or do we have faith because we are God's elect? Well, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? It's an age-old question. The question arises really from verses 11 and 12. Let's, we, we surveyed this last week. Let's, let's read it again really carefully here. It says, for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told the older, that is Esau, will serve the younger. So we learned last week that God's election of one individual over another was not dependent on anything that they had done. Now, the Greek word here for anything um, means anything. It just means any conceivable thing, right? Any action you would take, any action you would take, And then he goes on to say, it's not according to works, not according to works. So what does Paul mean by works here? Up until chapter 6, hasn't he contrasted faith and works? Think about this for a second. Follow me. Paul has said that if you have faith, it's not works. He defined works for us. He told us works apart from from faith. That's what he said. The Jews were trying to accomplish a righteousness. They were trying to get for themselves a righteousness. That was according to works of the law, apart from faith. That's what he said. So it's works without faith. And then you have faith that always results in works, right? And so he's contrasted these two ideas, works and faith. And so some might say, well, here, clearly God does not choose the individual based on their works, but surely he looks down the corridor of history and sees that this person will believe. Because faith is not works. And if faith is not works, then it can be according to their faith. God can just elect them according to their faith. And I don't think this works. I don't think this view of just looking down the hall of history and seeing whoever will believe and then declaring them the elect is what he means by predestination. If that's the case, then there just isn't anything for predestination to do. It's not election at all. It's just an acknowledgement of the people who do actually believe, right? It's not according to the will of God. And so I don't think that that works. And the reason I don't think that works is because of this word anything. Because faith itself is an action. It may not be a work, according to Paul, but it's an action. And Paul says, nothing. It's not according to anything they had done, good or bad. And it's not according to works. And so here, he does not contrast. I want you to note in the text here, he does not contrast works contrast works and faith in this text. Up until chapter 6, he has. But now he contrasts works and calling. 
That's a very different thing. Works and calling. Look at Romans 8, 28 through 30. Remember, we covered this. He says in verse 28, he says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Remember in that sermon, in that message a few weeks ago, we identified those who love God, according to the New Testament, are those whom God has loved first. Those whom God has taken the initiative to know first, to love first. And then he tells us who they are. They're the called, according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, look at the sequence. He predestined. And those he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he then justified. By what? Faith. And those he justified, he also glorified. So what precedes our justification by faith? What precedes our faith, our calling? So here in verses 11 and 12, Paul is contrasting works with our calling. He said it was according to God's will and it was according to God's work, not our work and not us calling ourselves or our desire or our will. And so we're not God's elect. God, that is, God doesn't call us or choose us or name us or call us out because we have justifying faith. We have justifying faith because he's called us. And the ones he called, he had already foreknown and predestined. So now that's the context of his statement about hating Esau. What does he mean there? Number two, this leads us to the second question in the text. Number two, how can God say he hates Esau if he loves the whole world? Have you thought about that? Romans 9, 13, he says, uh, as it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. So how can this claim square with John three sixteen? Remember John three sixteen. Remember what it says? Oh, you're thinking of the words right now in your mind, aren't you? You were playing the scripture. CSB says, for God loved the world in this way. This is how, this is the way in which God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That seems pretty clear. It seems pretty comprehensive. God loves the world so that they won't perish. Romans 5, 8, but God proves his own love. Didn't we preach this passage? God proves his own love in this way, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Doesn't God love the sinner? Of course he does. First John 2, 2, it says he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but those of the whole world. Why would he give his life for the whole world? He doesn't love them. And Jesus taught, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Well, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to do what he said. And he said to love your enemy. Did Jesus love his enemies? I think we would say that Jesus' entire life is characterized by his mercy and his compassion for the downtrodden and the marginalized, people who've just been shoved aside in, in, in the world. Jesus' whole life can be summed up in one word, love. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, remember this story, this guy, he's lived according to Torah since he was little, little guy. And he's lived according to Torah law, meticulously following all the commands. But in his heart, he knows something is not right. Something is missing. 
And so he, he hears about the miracle man who's giving everybody, who's handing out grace and uh, eternal life. And so he comes to Jesus, and what does he ask him? What's, what's the question that he has on his mind? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus gives him the answer. Jesus leads him to the answer. Now, what does he want to know? He wants to know, no, how can I secure my eternal life in God's kingdom when God's kingdom comes, right? That's what he means. And Jesus says, okay, all of the things you think are evidence of God's blessing in your life, which is your material wealth, get rid of it all. Because that's your God. And then come follow me, and I'll show you the way. I'll show you the way to eternal life. And the scripture says, the young man went away sad. He rejected Jesus to his face. He rejected discipleship. He rejected the offer of grace and the offer to eternal life. He rejected it. And the scripture clearly says, Jesus looked at the man and he loved him. He loved him. Isn't that what Jesus' life is all about? Isn't it the character of God revealed in the life of Jesus of Nazareth to say that God loves the wayward? Those who reject his name, yes, it is. But understand, as much as God loves you, God hates your sin. And sin is not some abstract thing floating out there in the ether. It's not some miasma that you can just breathe in and become infected with. No, there's no such thing as sin. Sin is not an abstract object. Sin comes from the sinner. It comes from the heart of the sinner, and we live in a culture that celebrates sin. It celebrates individuality to the point where reality is being denied on a daily basis. People are praised and celebrated for finding their authentic truth and living according to their authentic selves. Yeah, well, but if your authentic self involves the denial of God's image in you and God's truth about you, you need to understand God hates that. He hates it. God hates sin. And what's more, listen, God hates what your sin does to you. Because what does your sin make you? It makes you a sinner. And God didn't create sinners. God created image bearers, holy, righteous, following his word. And your sin distorts you and defaces that image in you and makes you a sinner. And it is in that sense that the Bible can say God hates you in your sin. God hates what sin has done to you. Look at the psalmist. Psalm 5.5 5 says, The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You hate evildoers. Psalm 11.5, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm 45.7 says it all. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. God loves what is righteous and he hates what is evil. He hates what is wicked and he hates what are evil, what are sinful choices. He hates what it produces in us and he hates us in our sin. And that's why he loves us. That's why he sent his son to die for us, to rescue us from that condemnation. Understand, God hates sin because it's an affront to his holiness, his absolute holiness, and because it distorts and defaces his image in us. Now, Paul is quoting here from Malachi 1, 2, and 3. The word hate 
can essentially mean a couple of different things. It could mean to revile, to despise, to loathe. It can actually be an emotional word that means to revile, to despise something. Think of something right now in your mind that you really hate. Some of you really hate that people set up for Christmas before Christmas, man. Like before Thanksgiving. Some of you hate that. I know that. But think of something you really hate. Now, understand, God hates wickedness, and his hatred is not like yours, because your hatred is finite. God's is infinite. It's infinite in perfection. But there's another sense in which uh, a Hebrew can use this word hate, and it's in the sense of just loving something less. Let me show you this in Genesis 29, 30. Remember this story? A young guy named Jacob, his name is the deceiver. Jacob slept with Rachel, which means he married her also. And indeed, he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. Do you remember this story? Uh, For those of you, if you haven't uh, been in church or you haven't heard this story, I just want to just really quickly, let me summarize the story. Jacob has gone out from his homeland, and he found this guy named, he needed to find employment, so he found a guy named Laban. And Laban has all this cattle, and he has all this land, and and he discovered that Laban has two daughters. One of them is named Leah, and one of them is named Rachel. And so Jacob gets tricked into marrying Leah. He, he gets tricked into marrying Leah because he really wants Rachel. And then Laban says, remember the rest of the story? He said, oh, you can have Rachel too. You can get a twofer here, but you have to indenture yourself as my slave for another seven years. And so he hangs in there with it, and he ends up getting both ladies. Now, is the story saying that he just despised ugly old Leah? Ugly, dumb, old, inconsequential Leah? No! That's not what it says. The story says he looked at Leah and saw she had pretty eyes. So from here up, she's ready to go. Hey, the Lord, not I. This is in the Bible. Okay? <laughs> and, and that just is a euphemism. That's just an idiom that means she had a pretty face. But then it says she, he looked at Rachel and saw that she had a curvy figure. And he said, well, I want Rachel. Typical guy. Right? <laughs> Nothing changes. And it's not that he hates dumb, ugly old Leah. She is consequential in the story. She is so pivotal in the story. She has half the tribes. And guess what? The tribe of Judah comes from her. And who comes from the tribe of Judah? The lion, the king, David's son, Jesus. She's very integral to the story. She's very important to the story. So it's not that he hates her. He doesn't despise her. Look at verse 31. This is when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So this is just a Hebrew way of saying, you prefer her than you hate me. Why do you hate me? Because you prefer her. This is a statement of preference. You loved me less. Jesus uses, or the New Testament, the Gospels use the same idea. Matthew 10, 37 Jesus issued this challenge. He said, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and the one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and the one who loves his own life is not worthy, 
to be called my disciple. You love yourself more than you love Jesus. You're not worthy to be his disciple. Now, oddly, Matthew, written to the Jews, translates the Semitism. He translates the Hebraic idiom, meaning to love more or to love less. But Luke doesn't. Luke maintains it. Look at Luke 14, 26. Same same exact context. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother, father, or mother, or wife, or children, or brothers and sisters, if you don't hate them, yes, even hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus telling you to hate your mom and dad, to revile them, to despise them? No. That would be to actually break one of the Ten Commandments, and Jesus would never tell you to do that. So, understand, it can mean to love less because of a preference. If you prefer your family over Jesus, you actually hate Jesus. But Malachi writes about Esau's descendants, Edom. Now, the Edomites, you can write that word down, you'll see that so many times in the Old Testament. If you're reading or studying through the Old Testament, you'll see Edom. They're so prominent in the prophets. And they treated Jacob's uh, Israeli children right? Natural children by birth. They treated them so poorly back, way back in Moses' day. And so, they just pronounced these curses upon Edom. Edom is a region uh, west, or I'm sorry, east of Jerusalem. And they just became known as the Edomites, but they're the descendants of Saul. Or I'm I'm sorry, Esau, not the descendants of Saul, the descendants of Esau. Herod, in the story, in the Christmas story, is an Edomite. He's a usurper king. And so, they have treated them so poorly, and there are so many prophecies about God rejecting the Edomites, God rejecting Esau. And right here in Malachi 1, it's another prophecy. But let me show you Amos 9, 11 through 12. Amos says, in that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David, the house of David. And I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnants of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. God is promising that there is going to be a remnant among the Edomites and that he is going to bring those people into his kingdom as well. So while salvation does not come through them because God preferred Jacob over Esau, he hated Esau, he loved Jacob, salvation does come to them. I have a friend, his name is Muhammad. He changed his name to Malachi. His name, his name, his birth name was Muhammad Hassan. Some of you know him. He used to attend this church. One day he and I were chatting, and uh, he was wanting to review my sermon that I did. It was a Christmas sermon, and he said, uh, oh, Brother Jeff, wonderful sermon. You know, like, he has this posh English accent, but he's from the UAE. And, and what he said to me was, uh, he said, I wanted to tell you, you were preaching about Uh, King Herod and the Edomites, he goes, I am an Edomite. And he was a believer in Jesus, loves Jesus Christ with all of his heart and all of his soul, probably more than I do. Loves the Lord, and he is a descendant of, of Esau. So understand, even though God has not preferenced them, God's preferential treatment is not toward them, it is toward Jacob and his his descendants to bring forth the Messiah. Salvation didn't come through them, but salvation has come now to them. Number three, as we come to the third question, Paul anticipates an objection. Number three, is God the author of sin? Sometimes you hear people ask this question. Well, then, okay, fine. So, so is God now the author of sin? 
He's predestined a world in which there is sin. He's predestined a world in which he raises up sinners and displays his power and displays his glory through them. Does that make God unrighteous? He says it right here, verse 14. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. The word injustice is the word adikia. And it's the same word he uses in Romans 1 when he says, the wrath of God is being revealed against all the adikia, the unrighteousness, the godlessness, the sin of idolatrous humanity. And then he goes on to describe idolaters who have chosen not to believe in God. They have chosen the path of idolatry. And in so doing, it has produced in their life every form of moral depravity, every form of moral insanity. And that's the word here. It's unrighteousness. And so, so the question is, is God unrighteous? Is God unjust? This would make God a sinner. And Paul thinks this is a preposterous objection. On what basis? He tells us, let's stay with Paul. Let's stay with Paul. God has the sovereign right, he says, to show mercy or not. God has the sovereign right to show mercy or not. It's not sinful. It's not unrighteous for God to withhold mercy or to show it to some. Verse 15, absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But on what basis? On what does it depend? It depends on God's right to show mercy to whom he will and to withhold it from whom he withholds it. The world is under a standing condemnation. It stands condemned already, and God has no obligation. Listen, God has no obligation to save any sinner in their sin. None. The world is already in a state of sin and rebellion. And earlier I mentioned John three sixteen. Well, let's read 17 and 18. Let's read the rest of it. Who of us have memorized these verses? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Whew, thank God. But to save the world through Him. That's good news. Verse 18, anyone who believes in Him is not condemned. All right. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Say what? Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. Understand, we are talking about God's judgment we are talking about a standing condemnation that we already have. The light has come into the world, and people just kind of preferred the darkness. It doesn't say that. It says we love the darkness. We loved it. Instead of receiving the light, we drank the darkness to its dregs rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And what does the light do? It exposes our evil deeds, our wickedness, our sin. And so understand, this is a salvation from condemnation passage. It's not that people just could do without the light. They hated the light. They loved the darkness. And listen, God owes no one mercy in the first place. Offering it to anyone is a pure act of grace. And no one, no one can obligate God to offer anyone mercy. So what Paul appeals to here is God's right to offer mercy to whom he wills. And then he appeals to the fact that God's mercy is dependent on his sovereign grace, not our human will. It's dependent on his sovereign grace, not our human will. We're going to stay with Paul here. We're not going to bring in all kinds of philosophical ideas. Just stick with Paul. Believe me, I could, I could lay those philosophical ideas on you 
and you would not want to hear them. <laughs> Unfortunately, the pastoral staff does have to hear them. But notice the second part of this answer, Romans 9, 16. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort. So clear, but on God, the God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. Why did I raise you up? To display my power. Why? So that the story would be broadcast. And I think, I think it has been broadcast across the face of the earth. Look at what God did to Egypt's gods. Look how triumphant God is. Verse 18, so then, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, his point here is that it does not depend on man's will or man's effort. Hey, quiet. Sorry, got to shut my phone up. It's talking back to me. She said amen, by the way. His point is here is that it does not depend on man's will or effort. That is, man's will or effort is not the basis on which God makes the judgment. But just because it doesn't depend on man's will or effort doesn't mean that it doesn't involve man's will or effort. I want to show you this. I'll say it again. Just because it doesn't depend on man's will or effort doesn't mean that it doesn't involve man's will or man's effort. It's right here in Exodus. All you got to do is... Look at the story, Ephesians, or Exodus 4.21. When God first gives Moses this call that he's going to go, and he's going to do this vocation, he's going to go back and let the people go. He's going to deliver the people. He says, here's what's going to happen. But I will harden his heart, that is Pharaoh, so that he won't let the people go. Now, time and time again, this account says something like that. Chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. Time and again, Pharaoh's heart, it says, was hardened by God, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Look at chapter 8, verse 15. But Pharaoh, he hardened his own heart, and he wouldn't listen. Chapter 8, 32, chapter 9, 34. Now, look at what the Philistines, how the Philistines, the people on the coast, the coastal people, look at how the Philistines interpreted that event between Israel and Egypt. For Samuel 6.6 6 says, The priests answered to the Philistines as to why they should return the ark of the Lord back to Israel. They said, Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and, and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? So here's the question. Did God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart involve Pharaoh hardening his heart? Yes, it did. And Romans 9.16 says that it did not dep depend on the will or effort of man, but it did involve it. That's the means through which God did harden his heart. Now, the more shocking claim of the passage, this entire passage, is not that God loved, listen, God loved Jacob more than he loved Esau. That's not the shocking claim of the passage. Or that God raised up Pharaoh for this purpose of judging him and displaying his glory and power. No, the more shocking claim of the passage is that God has shown any sinner mercy at all. Because God is not obligated to. And there is no one equal to God who can say, you should really do that. You should. You ought to really offer all those sinners mercy. If you don't believe that, ask the fallen angels if they would like to have an atonement sacrifice. Because as far as we know, they don't have one. So does God's election of Pharaoh to demonstrate his power and thus his glory implicate God as a sinner? No. 
There is no unrighteousness in God because God is the standard by which every other act of righteousness is measured. Paul says that the question is just nonsense because God doesn't owe a condemned sinner mercy in the first place. And if God chooses to glorify himself by punishing the wicked or raising Pharaoh up to demonstrate his power by pouring out his wrath on this guy, God has the right to do so. Number four, how can God hold us morally responsible then? Well, if that's the case, (laughs) then the next question comes, how can God hold us morally responsible if we're just acting according to his will? Now, this is another objection he anticipates. Notice Paul's response, Romans 9, 19. Well, you will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? How does God find Pharaoh blameworthy? How does God find me, a sinner, blameworthy if the, if the person was raised up for this very purpose to display God's glory and his power? Let's stick with Paul here, Okay. Paul's first answer, I think, is as the creator, God alone has the right to determine our purpose. God alone has the right by design and by decree to determine what purpose we serve. Now, that may not sit well with us. We may want a more detailed explanation of that. But this is the one he gives. I think it is. Look at what he says. Verses 20 and 21. He says, on the contrary, who are you? A human being? Who are you, old man, to talk back to God? Are you in a position to gainsay God's judgments on the matter? I don't think so. Well, what does form say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right, no freedom over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and one for dishonor? Great logic. So Paul clearly appeals to God's creational right to raise up Israel to bring the Messiah and to raise up Edom and judge them or to bring up Pharaoh for judgment. So as the creator, God alone has the right to determine our purpose by design and decree. Next, God makes known the riches of his mercy through the objects of wrath. This one is really mysterious. This one is really hard to get your hands around because essentially what, it, what Paul is saying here is that the reason why God has confined all or consigned all to the prison of sin is so that he may demonstrate the absolute mercifulness of his mercy. Look at verses 20 through 22, 24. 22 through 24. He says, And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? Who prepared them? God. And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, us, the ones he also called, not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles? What is he saying here? Look, I I don't know. I mean, I think what he's saying is what if it was God's plan? What if the God who has the creational right to determine our purpose and to to determine our meaning and to determine everything about us, what if that God raised up some for to display his wrath and his power and his glory, and then took some from among them to display his grace and his mercy? Who can judge God in the matter? Who can say God doesn't have the right to do that? You can't. Next, human beings maintain the capacity to choose freely, but are currently bound and imprisoned to sin. Paul also seems very clear about this. Now, I want to pull two things apart that philosophers, Christian philosophers or philosophical theologians are, are want to pull apart, right? 
They're, they're very reluctant to pull these things apart, and I think they really need to be biblically. Okay, one is what we typically call free will. So the question will be, well, well do we have free will then? Does a person really have free will? That's really actually the wrong question. That's, that's the wrong question. I think that's the wrong question. The right question is, do we have the innate capacity for choice and thus responsibility? I'll say it again. The right question is, do we have the innate capacity to make choices and then to be held liable for those choices? And the answer to that is, of course that's true. Of course we do, right? But the real question is, do we have the libertarian freedom to volitionally choose Christ over sin? And there I would say, no, no, we don't. You don't have that until you do. <laughs> I think that's what the New Testament teaches. You don't have that. You haven't been set free until Christ frees you. And so the analogy that I would give here would be uh, a prisoner in a maximum security prison. Now, that person may have 23 hours in their cell. Do they still have the innate capacity to make choices? Of course they do. They have a will. Do they have a personal will? Yes, they do. Uh, but everything else is chosen for them. What they eat, when they eat, which hour of the day they spend out in the prison yard, lifting weights, getting super pumped so they can be released and wreak more havoc on the world, you know. <laughs> so yes, they have the innate capacity for choice. They have the innate capacity to express their will. What don't they have? They don't have libertarian freedom. They don't have freedom from their prison cell. I think this is precisely what Paul is saying in Romans eleven thirty two. Watch, watch this now. Watch this. He says this at the end of this discourse, at the end of this whole line of thought. He says, as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their, that is the Jews' disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. <laughs> it's strange. It's strange. It's counterintuitive. Verse 32, for God has imprisoned all. Who? God has imprisoned all the Jew and the Gentile, in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Understand, this is precisely the kind of metaphor or language that the New Testament uses when it describes a person in their sin. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 that you and I, our minds are corrupted in darkness. We have in our sin and in our idolatry and in our narcissism, we have become so corrupted in darkness that we cannot see the truth. In Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us that we are dead in our trespasses, dead in our transgressions. What do dead men do? They don't do anything. Romans 6, 7, and 11 tells us that we are enslaved, imprisoned to sin. What do prisoners not have? They don't have libertarian freedom. They don't have the freedom to walk out of their prison cell. And so what do we need? Our darkened minds need enlightenment by the Holy Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 2. Our dead souls need resurrection life by the Holy Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 15. And our imprisonment, our enslaved, imprisoned nature needs to be set free by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Romans chapter 8. Understand that you have the innate capacity to choose Christ. What you don't have is the freedom to do it. You don't have it until you do. 
And this is why Paul says in Galatians 5, this is why he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Well, if it's for freedom Christ set you free, that means you didn't have it before he set you free. Now you and I live in libertarian freedom. We live in the freedom to follow the Son of God, to follow his teachings and to walk after him. You and I fundamentally need for the Holy Spirit to turn on the lamp of the darkened mind, to set the heart that has become damned and imprisoned and enslaved to sin free. And apart from that, we don't have freedom. But if the Son of God has set you free, you are free indeed. Has he set you free this morning? Do you enjoy the freedom of his grace today? And if you, if you don't, then you're a sinner and you're still dead in your trespasses. Your mind is darkened to the truth. Your soul remains dead and in need of resurrection life, and you're enslaved and imprisoned to your sin. And I'm here to tell you the Holy Spirit is present in this holy assembly to, to do that work, to set you free. Will you believe? Will you open your heart and believe? Do it. Do it. Right? All right, let's pray. Bow your head, close your eyes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you work everything out for the good of those whom you foreknew, predestined, and called. And there's no daylight between those things. And those of us you have called to salvation, you justified by faith. And if you're here this morning and you've been appointed for eternal life and the Holy Spirit is moving on your heart and you're ready to believe, will you right now be set free? Walk out of that jail cell because Christ sets you free. See the truth for what it is. Christ died for your sins. And God, we thank you there is absolutely nothing that can separate the called from your love. Nothing can pull us out of your love. Nothing can pull us away from you. We thank you for that. And we thank you, God, that your plan with your original people, ethnic Israel, has not failed, that you you did exactly what you wanted to do. You brought the world salvation. And we thank you for choosing a remnant. We thank you for choosing a people from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles. We thank you for gathering us here so that we may worship in spirit and in truth. And God, we, we pray this morning for every person in our world who doesn't know you. And we don't know. We're not God. We, we are not infinite. We don't know everything. We don't have your knowledge. We just have your message. But you have on your schedule appointments for people to know you, and we pray they would know you. We pray the, the light would dawn in their hearts, and we pray for this community, this community where religious darkness has taken such a powerful hold. We pray that the light of the gospel will penetrate and break through and set some sinners free who need your free grace. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.